How are y'all? Good. Glad y'all got to see me. So, um, that's a joke. Uh, we're going to try to go through, because uh, Ira loves to fly through the Bible, we're going to try and go through seven and eight tonight. But, but if we make it through, which I think we will, we'll be stopping right in the middle, and I'll explain it, but we'll be stopping right in the middle of this um, issue of trying to, of Paul trying to collect for the Jerusalem church from all the churches around the Mediterranean, but the church in Corinth is having some trouble. I'm sorry, I've got to close this. I forgot that construction thing. So, off the topic, we are doing a revelation in the fall, and not just the first three chapters, which is what most people do when they do revelation. They do the first three chapters, the letters, and then they abandon everything else. But we're going to go through the whole thing. Uh, And uh, in preparation, Zach Hines, who's the pastoral resident, and I have started to make a list of uh, the 10 things uh, in this earth that we experience that most closely resemble what hell is going to be like and one of the things on the list already is uh, you're going to be in a car and you're going to be driving eternally on Camelback Road. (laughs) So that's one of them so you have a little preview. Okay. (laughs) So anyway um, we we, uh, will get through seven which is where he's kind of wrapping up the first uh, half of this letter then we get into eight and nine which is Paul talking about the did I turn that on? Yep. Paul talking about the uh, collection for the Jerusalem church. We'll stop in the middle of that. And then once we get through 9 on uh, the 14th, which will be the last, day, last Wednesday until January, uh, we're going to stop right when Paul gets started with his, what's known as his foolish speech in, uh, in uh, 2 Corinthians. The last uh, four or five chapters of 2 Corinthians, Paul's really mad, and he expresses it in an interesting way. Anyway, uh, so uh, read 7.1 just to kind of wrap up what happened in in, um, 6, and then moving into 7. Since we have these promises, beloved, let us cleanse ourselves from every defilement of the body and spirit, bringing holiness to completion in the fear of God. So... Paul's trying to wrap up everything that he was saying in in 4, 5, and 6. And we're going to review that in a second. But then he says in 2 through 4, Make room in your hearts for us. We have wronged no one. We have corrupted no one. We have taken advantage of no one. I do not say this to condemn you. For I said before that you are in our hearts to die together and to live together. I am acting with great boldness toward you. I have great pride in you, and I am filled with comfort. In all our affliction, I am overflowing with joy. So what Paul is doing now is he's renewing his call for the Corinthians to be reconciled to him and for him to be reconciled to the Corinthians. And so he writes, therefore, at the beginning of verse 2. And he says, therefore, since all of this is true, and what he means by that is everything from chapter 3 until right now, 
since all of this is true, so let me just remind you of the major themes of three through six that he's reminding them of. Number one, there's a call from God on every Christian to be ambassadors for the faith. There's the reality that God uses common, fragile things, people, for his mission, reminding us that it's his power to save and not ours. It's the fact that God veils and unveils the gospel. We went through that. It's the fact that Paul and his crew have not used the gospel for personal gain, but rather they've suffered by proclaiming the gospel, which that becomes a big issue in in, uh, chapters uh, 10 through 13, uh, because these interlopers that come into the church at Corinth that are talking about uh, Paul and his guys, they're accusing, one of the things they're accusing Paul and his guys of is using the gospel for personal gain and for personal power, which is exactly what they're doing. It's a perfect picture of projecting and gaslighting that these guys are, are doing. I bet you didn't know that gaslighting wasn't new. Okay. Um, it's it's um, the fact that Paul desperately wants the Corinthians to joyously join him in his mission to proclaim the gospel. It's the fact that in Christ our bodies are temples of the living God, effectively replacing the Jerusalem temple, which ironically is only 15 years away right now, as Paul writes this, the Jerusalem temple is only 15 years away from being destroyed by the Romans. And it's the fact that they needed to renounce false teaching and syncretism and to confront sin. Syncretism being that idea of we're going to take um, the good parts of the gospel and we're going to mix it with pagan worship to come up with something that sort of looks Christian but isn't really Christian and it's really more about us. Okay? So Paul says, because all of this is true, let's be reconciled. Let's love each other. Let's join in the mission. Let's put aside the things of the world and all the sin that hinders us from being one in Christ. Let's have some unity. And unity is important, but if you have to sacrifice and compromise doctrine for unity, you you have to kind of think twice about that. But he says, let's live as redeemed people in the gospel, agreeing on these things. And Paul reminds them that he has done nothing to break their fellowship. He's wronged no one. He's corrupted no one. And again, even in the midst of this, look at... uh, the last little bit of that paragraph, how Paul is careful to point out that even though the Corinthians need correction, they're still part of the kingdom of God. Paul builds them up, even as he's calling them to repentance and correction, he's still building them up in the midst of that. Even with all the trouble between this church and Paul, Paul still refers to them as joy and with joy. And if you remember, weeks ago we talked about that notion of pro-social shame Uh, The psychiatrist uh, Anna Lemke saying, uh, shame has gotten a bad rap in our culture. Yes, there is destructive shame, but there's also something called pro-social shame where you, um, you are attuned to the person and what they're doing is wrong and you are able to confront confront it and contain it but at the same time you're saying we're not going to break relationship over this I still love you but but part of that love is that I have to confront you and it where you in what you're doing that's wrong and we have to try to contain that it's not just I'm going to blow you out of the water and the relationship is broken so Paul practices that he confronts them he rebukes them He tries to correct them, but all the while he's telling them, you're still a part of the kingdom of God. You're still the church. God still loves you. There's grace to be had uh, here. So 
Paul then takes this restorative, corrective encouragement and the joy he finds in the Corinthians, and he expounds on it. And it's sort of an emotional high for Paul. It's personal. It's uh, very personal. It's somewhat expected. And so now what he does is he speaks of how his previous letter, in these next verses, he speaks of how his previous letter, at least for now, did what he hoped it would do. It called the Corinthians to repentance and to an understanding of Paul's true love for them and their gospel well-being. So look at verses 5 through 9. For even when we came to Macedonia, our bodies had no rest, but we were afflicted at every turn, fighting without fear, uh, fighting without and fear within. That's an interesting little phrase that we'll talk about. But God, who comforts the downcast, comforted us by, by the coming of Titus, and not only by his coming, but also by the comfort uh, with which he, is, he was comforted by you as he told us of your longing, your mourning, your zeal for me, so that I rejoiced still more. For even if I made you grieve with my letter, I do not regret it, though I did regret it. For I see that this letter, uh, that this letter grieved you, though only for a while. As it is, I rejoice not because you were grieved, but because you were grieved into repenting. For you felt a godly grief so that you suffered no loss through us. So, verse 5, it kind of sounds like Paul's looking for sympathy, sympathy from them, but he's not. Paul's pointing out that he and his guys have done nothing that could be deemed as obstacles to the Corinthians reconciling with them. And he says, we were fighting without and fear within. Now, what does that mean? Well, this refers to two different kinds of attacks on Paul and the guys that he was with. Number one, they were being attacked from outside the community, culture and the world pushing against the gospel faith and the doctrines of the Christian church. Very similar to today, what the church faces today. And second of all, the fear within, they were being attacked from within the faith community, from within the church, by people in the church who don't like biblical, godly doctrine. I, I know this is going to shock some of you, but there are people in churches that don't like biblical doctrine. Okay? That's been going on for centuries. And, and they're afraid to live according to this biblical doctrine, and they want to change or reinterpret the biblical doctrine. So all of that is also very similar to some of the challenges that we have today. The, the false teachers that Paul would that faced and rebuked in the first century, same ones that Peter faced and rebuked, the same ones that John faced and rebuked, they're no different than today. It happens all the time. Okay? So then verses 6 and the first part of 7, let me just ask you, does anybody here have somebody in your life where when you're just having a terrible time, you're down, things aren't going very well, all they have to do is show up or in our current context, maybe text you. All they have to do is just show up, text you, let you know that they're thinking about you, praying for you, and, and you're instantly encouraged. I have people like that uh, in my life. And Paul has that here with Titus. So there's two things going on with Titus. Not only does Titus, Titus's mere presence encourage Paul. Titus just shows up and Paul's happy to see him. 
But it's not just that he shows up, it's also that he has a message from the Corinthian church. He comes bearing good news. Now, this is different than what happens at the end of chapter 9 when apparently somebody else came in bearing very bad news about the Corinthian church, which sets Paul off. But right now, he's hearing from Titus as he's writing this letter, and he's getting really good news from Titus. He's saying, that letter, that, that harsh letter that you sent them and told them they needed to repent and correct, and they needed to turn back to God, it worked. And they, they've, they, they don't hold you uh, accountable, they're not mad at you, and they've turned back to God in the midst of this. Okay? So, verse 8. I just want to know if anybody is confused by this verse. Oop. Well, he says he, he doesn't regret it, then he did regret it. Right, so, for even if I made you grieve in my letter, I don't regret it, though I do regret it. <laughs> right? No, I did. Yeah. I don't regret it, but I regret it. Anybody ever said anything like that? Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yes. <laughs> John Kerry. <laughs> uh, only a few of us in here will remember that. Yeah. He, he regretted when he wrote it. Uh, when he, he grieved him when he wrote yeah. it. Yeah. Uh, we, we may not say this out loud, but I'll bet you we've had these feelings before. Okay. You know you have something that needs to be said that's hard, right? And maybe it's going to be done through an email or a text. And you've written out the email. Then you've erased it. And then you've written it back out. And then you wait a day. You know, maybe a text is like that. You've written out the text and you're looking at it. And, you know. And then finally you hit send. <laughs> okay. <laughs> And you know you have to send it, right? But the minute you, have, you hit send, you have what's called sender's remorse. Oh, man. And then you're like this, and you're afraid to check your phone. You're afraid to check the email. Okay? I know I had to send it, but I also regret sending it. Because how are they going to receive it? Is it going to work? Are, are they going to receive it with grace, or are they going to receive it with anger? Okay? Um, there are times when we have to grieve someone. They really need a reality check. They need to be confronted. There needs to be a hard conversation. But that doesn't mean we enjoy it. Can I get an amen? amen. Yeah. It's not like we're walking around going, I'm looking for hard conversations today. <laughs> okay. Um, when those hard conversations happen and they go marginally well, you know, there's some relief there, isn't there? There's usually some relief there. You're, you're glad that perhaps it didn't do any permanent damage. You ever had a hard conversation and it did permanent damage? I have. You know, and then I have to convince myself it wasn't me that did the damage. But, but then you live with it for sometimes years, you know. Let me, here you go. Let me ask you this question. Is anybody here married so you understand what we're talking about here, right? <laughs> Anybody here a boss or has been a boss? So you understand. That's the example I instantly thought of as being a boss because that's really tough. Yeah. You have a person you want to have them on your team, but you want to correct some bad behavior. Right. And, and you, you have to go in and balance that conversation with, we want you here and we want you to succeed, but uh -huh. 
you need to do some other things in order to succeed and be here. Yeah, for sure. But then verse 9 is the payoff. Their grief resulted in repentance, and that's a good, grief, a good thing. And it was godly grief. So Paul, in, verse, uh, in the following verses, he's going to talk about worldly grief. So he's setting up a contrast between godly grief and worldly grief. So here you go. Godly grief, godly pain, godly shame, godly guilt. Those are all actually good things, even though we don't much care for them when we're going through it. But they are actually good things. Godly grief always achieves something that the believer desperately needs, even though we may not want it. It achieves accurate self-assessment, confession of sin, repentance, and a more stringent embracing of the love, grace, and discipline of God. I'm, I'm a little off topic, but it, I think it goes to this, especially when you get into the worldly grief. Um, y'all know who Will Smith is, right? He's a fabulously uh, talented entertainer. I mean, the first person to ever win a Grammy for a rap song. I don't know if you knew that about him. Okay, and then he did the Fresh Prince of Bel-Air. Anybody ever watch that show? I never watched it. Yeah, I watched it. Did you watch it, Rachel? Did you like it? Yeah, okay. See, I, I'm thinking about going back now and watching the whole series because I feel like I missed out. <laughs> Yeah, because now we can watch Yellowstone. <laughs> yeah, I know, but I like, you know, I'm still watching Seinfeld and laughing, you know, even though it has nothing to do with today. Um, and, then he, and then he starts making movies, and he literally becomes the biggest and most bankable movie star in Hollywood. I mean, it's incredible. So he wrote, a, um, he wrote an autobiography with the author Mark Manson, which I've read one of, uh, one of Mark Manson's other book. Books, by the way, he's no relation to Charlie, but, um, <laughs> but uh, uh, so Will writes this autobiography, uh, a very clever title of the autobiography. It's called Will, and and um, and I decided I'm not going to read it. I'm going to get the audio version because I heard that uh, he actually reads his own autobiography. So that means that the, when the author reads it, you get all the right inflection and all that. And then since it's an audio book. Uh, he also inserts like, like clips from his songs and clips from Fresh Prince of Bel Air and clips from some of his movies and everything. It's been it's been fantastic. I'm on the last disc. Yeah, I, I still have a CD player in my car, so um, I'm on the it's 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 actually 13 CDs. I'm on the last disc, and it's been great. But it's also been painful because all of the pain that's been in Will Smith's life has been because he's also hyper-selfish. I don't know if you know that about him. And, and now I'm at the point in, the, in his autobiography where he's got this world-famous uh, psychologist from Europe. That means they're really uh, qualified. A world-famous European psychologist who's working with him for two years. And, and the... Here's the assessment for Will Smith's selfishness. He needs to go deeper into himself. <laughs> oh my goodness. So this seems to be the answer to everybody's problems right now, you know? If I just and he keeps saying throughout the entire book, he keeps saying the problem is is that when you get this much, you really think a little bit more is going to satisfy you and then it doesn't because you think a little bit more is it's always about more. It's the same with um, all this research 
um, that psychologists and molecular biologists are doing about social media and all of the um, anxiety and stress and suicidal thoughts that social media are causing people and every person who is having this anxiety, stress, and suicidal thoughts about social media, they think that the, the solution is to get better at social media and do, do it more. That'll fix the problem. All of us have this, by the way, uh, in Dopamine Nation, you'll read about that too. That seems to be our, um, I'm eating too many carbs, so if I just eat more carbs, everything will be fine. That's, that's what we think. Okay, that's exactly what we think. That's why I eat a lot of Cheetos. Anyway, so, so here's Paul saying, listen, you finally understand what godly grief is. That's, that's a grief where you're getting the focus off you and onto God and the gospel. But then watch what happens in 10 through 13a. For godly grief produces a repentance that leads to salvation without regret, whereas worldly grief produces death. For we see what er, foresee what earnestness this godly grief has produced in you, but also what eagerness to clear yourselves, what indignation, what fear, what longing, what zeal, what punishment. At every point you have proved yourselves innocent in this matter. So although I wrote to you, it was not, it was not for the sake of the one who did the wrong, nor for the sake of the one who suffered the wrong, but in order that your earnestness for us might be revealed to you in the sight of God. Therefore, we are comforted. So Paul is ecstatic right now. So we talked about godly grief, but now he brings up worldly grief. Worldly grief is what we feel when we have somehow lost the approval of humans. Okay, so Will Smith, his, his, his drug, the thing that he was addicted to, was the approval of everyone else in his life. That's all he lived for. Because that's, that's where he got his dopamine from. So worldly grief is what we feel when we've somehow lost the approval of humans, of others, and the approval of the world and the culture. Even when we have walked away from God in order to receive the approval of humans or others or of the culture and the world. It's the person today who gets canceled even though they have followed the current cultural narrative of denouncing Christianity. It's when you get ratioed on social media. I'm so glad that when I was on Twitter, I never got ratioed. I think it's because I had like six followers, so that's maybe why, okay? But essentially, it's Kyrie Irving. If you've been watching the story of Kyrie Irving, it's exactly what's happening to him. He's everything that the culture wants, but he did this one wrong thing now. Now he's canceled in big trouble, okay? But also, worldly grief is also something else. It's when you've done something wrong and you get caught and you have grief because you got caught, not because you think you did anything wrong. You understand what I'm saying? The only reason you're apologizing is because you got caught. You've heard people say that before, right? The only reason you're sorry is because you got caught. That's worldly grief. There's not true repentance there. There's not true confession of doing something wrong. So godly grief produces what we need. Worldly grief produces depression, anxiety, and even suicidal thoughts. The reason worldly grief produces death is because a person will do just about anything to regain the world's approval and the elimination of any sort of humiliation that we might feel, which only takes them further away from God, which then leads to spiritual death and eternal corruption. By the way, Tom, our founding pastor, used to teach about this. I, I, 
it's so simple, but I, the first time I heard him say it, I thought it was pretty profound. He said, you know, there's a difference between being humbled and being humiliated. Now, do, do you understand that there's a difference? Okay. When you're humbled, you're like, okay, I'm not all that. I, I, okay, this experience has helped me to figure out that I'm not all that and I really need God. When you're humiliated, you're embarrassed and you're trying to get away from that. It's not a learning experience for you. It's just misery. That's all. When you're humbled, there's, you're beginning to realize there's something good that's going to come out of this. So the Corinthians, according to Titus's good report, have decided to jettison worldly grief and have finally embrace godly grief, which leads to repentance and a commitment to God. And Paul reminds them that this was his hope all along. He didn't write necessarily so that the victimizer and the victims would be vindicated. Rather, he wrote so that the church and its leadership would lead well in a gospel-centered, covenantal way. Paul believes that that's now what's happening based on his report from Titus, and he's encouraged by that. So, 13b through 16. And besides our own comfort, we rejoice still more at the joy of Titus because his spirit has been refreshed by you all. For whatever boasts I made about, to him about you, I was not put to shame. That's interesting. But just as everything we said to you was true, so also our boasting before Titus has proved true. And his affection for you is even greater as he remembers the obedience of you all, how you received him with fear and trembling. I rejoice because I have complete confidence in you. So Paul's testimony to the Corinth, uh, of the Corinthians, Paul's testimony about the church in Corinth to Titus turns out to be true. Paul predicted to Titus that even though this was going to be a rough patch, which, by the way, all pastors go through, Paul predicted that it would be okay. And he was right. And now he rejoices in that. So Paul now wraps up this part of the letter and moves into a new topic for chapters 8 and 9. So look at verses 1 through 7 of 8. We want you to know, brothers, about the grace of God that has been given among the churches of Macedonia. For in a severe test of affliction, their abundance of joy and their extreme poverty have overflowed in a wealth of generosity on their part. For they gave according to their means, as I can testify, and beyond their means, of their own accord, begging us earnestly for the favor of taking part in the, re- in the relief of the saints. And this, not as we expected, But they gave themselves first to the Lord and then by the will of God to us. Accordingly, we urge Titus that as he had started, so he should complete among you this act of grace. But as you excel in everything, in faith and speech and knowledge and all earnestness and in our love for you, see to it that you excel also in this act of grace as well. It's interesting to me, there's a lot in this one verse, I'm sorry, in this one paragraph, these seven verses but none of it is new. It's just discussed by Paul in a a new context in a different situation. Paul now talks to the Corinthians about the money that he must raise and has been trying to raise for the last year for the Jerusalem church that has been stuck in a severe famine and they need help from other churches. So he's asking for help from all the churches around the northern, northwestern, and northeastern edges of the Mediterranean. So this would include Corinth and Um, Galatia and Thessalonica, uh, Ephesus, Philippi, Antioch even, 
all these different churches, these ancient churches that we're aware of. And these other churches have apparently responded brilliantly, even though they might have some tough economic times. But interestingly, and Paul needs to sort of thread the needle here, he just got done having this emotional high with them, and now he's got to reconfront them about something. He's got to sort of thread the needle here. He's talking to the richest church now. Of all these churches, Corinth was by far the richest church. It's the church with the most resources. But that's the church that's been the most reticent to contribute to this fund for the Jerusalem church. Which is strange also, and Paul calls them out on this, because at first, when Paul first mentioned this a year ago to the Corinthians, they were all on board. They couldn't wait to give. They wanted to help. They wanted to be a big part of this. But now this passion for their giving ministry has cooled. So, first of all, let's talk about all the stuff that, uh, that's in these seven verses. Okay, so Paul talks about affliction, tribulation, challenging and suffering, and the fact that those things come to everyone. Affliction, tribulation, challenges, suffering, inevitable, unavoidable, unstoppable. There is no methodology, philosophy, or worldview that will stop those things from happening in this world in our lives. It doesn't happen. However, that is what most people are looking for. They're looking for a worldview, a methodology, a religion, a philosophy, whatever, that will take away all the problems of life, all the suffering, all the tribulation, all the unpleasantness, all the discomfort. And, and I'm sure some of you have heard me say this before. I, I still say and believe and proclaim that biblical theology is the only one that is willing to admit to you that life is hard. <laughs> Because a lot of other people are saying, I do have the methodology. I do have the system. I do have the philosophy. I know how to do it. Okay? That whole idea of just imagine a cloud floating by and you put all your problems on it and the cloud takes away your problems. That's never worked for me. Now, I'll be honest, I probably haven't tried very hard with it because it sounds ridiculous. (laughs) Okay? But there isn't. None of this is going to stop. Okay, God's MO is not to take away this stuff. His MO is to walk through it with us. That's clearly shown in uh, Romans 5 and uh, James chapter 1. He also talks about how joy is not antithetical to affliction, tribulation, challenges, and suffering. In fact, having joy, even as circumstances are difficult, is actually a mark of somebody who's in Christ. Happiness and joy are not the same thing. Happiness uh, depends on circumstances. Joy depends on a relationship. You can have joy when circumstances are bad. It's pretty difficult to be happy when circumstances are bad. He also talks about how generosity is not a character trait that's limited to wealthy people. In fact, the definition of generosity is giving sacrificially beyond one's means. That's verses 2 and 3. Corinth is wealthy, but even, they, even so they aren't helping, and that's, he's saying that's sad. Then he says, um, being out, this is verse 4, being outward focused is not a grudging duty, but it's something that a Christ follower naturally wants to do, yearns to do. So he's saying, come on, Corinthians, be more outward focused, don't be so self, self-absorbed. Uh, verse 5, the Christian life, as exemplified by these previously mentioned things, 
comes from an overflow of our love and submission to God first, not our request to find happiness. So Paul says, look, you got to first give yourself to God and then allow all these other things to fall into place. It's the Sermon on the Mount. You know, when Jesus says, look at everybody running around, he says, seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, then these things will be added unto you. C.S. Lewis paraphrased that in The Four Loves, saying, um, uh, if you aim for the world, you'll miss the world and you'll miss God. But if you aim for God, you get the world thrown in. Okay? It's about priorities. It's not that the world is necessarily bad. It's not that wealth is bad. It's not that achieving is bad. Success is bad. Uh, none of this is like an anti-ambition, pro-complacency message. That's not what he's trying to do. He's just trying to say, you've got to just get your priorities straightened out. And then verses 1, 6, and 7, everything they do needs to be seasoned with and by grace. And finally, Paul constantly calls us to look at these lists of essential items in his letters. He's famous for these lists. Some of these lists are really good, and some of them are sin lists. But this is one of those good lists, and there's five in this list. They are faith. And he's not just talking about the faith that saves here. He's talking about the faith that guides us as, uh, in our lives as followers of Jesus. The second one is speech. Literally what he's saying there when he says speech is he's talking about uh, proclaiming the message of the gospel. It's the word logos. It's the message. Uh, then this third one is knowledge. And that knowledge there specifically is of the will of God. That's what we should all ascend to. Try to acquiesce. To it's um, Ephesians chapter five. Um, do not live as a foolish person, but rather seek the will of God. That's where you find wisdom. The fourth thing is earnestness. That word in the Greek literally means enthusiastic diligence. So you know, most of us we hear the word diligence, and it's like, okay, we're gonna you know make a face, and we're gonna really get down to it. And he's saying, no, be enthusiastic about it. It's that person at um, LA Fitness that you hate because they're so happy with their workout. Okay? And then, of course, the last one is love. Okay? So, like I said, Paul's lists are iconic, legendary, and indispensable. Now, specifically about Paul's desire for the Corinthians to adequately participate in the offering for the Jerusalem church, watch how he couches it. Now, this is vintage Paul. Subtle guilt, but not too much. <laughs> All right? Verses 8 through 15. I say this not as a command, but to prove by the earnestness of others that your love is also genu genuine. This is not a command, but if you really want to be loving, you better do this. <laughs> See, subtle, not so subtle. It's like a baseball bat. For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor, so that you, by his poverty, might become rich. And in this matter I give my judgment. This benefits you, who a year ago started not only to do this work, but also to desire to do it. See, there he is. He's saying, a year ago you were on board with us. So now finish doing it as well, so that your readiness in desiring it may be matched by your completing it out of what you have. For if the readiness is there, it is acceptable according to what a person has, not according to what he does not have. For I do not mean that others should be eased and you burdened. 
but that as a matter of fairness, your abundance at the present time should supply their need so that their abundance may supply your need, that there may be fairness. As it is written, whoever gathered much had nothing left over and whoever gathered little had no lack. It's an interesting little proverb. So verse 8, Paul says, it's not a command. You certainly don't. Uh, but certainly, if you don't participate, I don't see how anyone in, in any other church could call you loving. Not a command, but if you don't do it, you're really not loving. Subtle guilt. And then Paul uses not some conjured pastoral illustration to make his point, but he uses Jesus himself. He says in verse 9, look at what Jesus gave. He gave everything. He gave all that he had. He gave his life. And by worldly standards, you understand Jesus was really poor. You, however, are rich. Aren't you ashamed of how little you're giving? And then verses 10 through 11, Paul says, but actually I do have an opinion about this. Here, let me reread 10 and 11. And in this matter, I give my judgment. This benefits you, who a year ago started not only to do this work, but also the desire to do it. So now finish it doing it as well, so that, by, uh, so that your readiness in desiring it may be matched by your completing it out of what you have. So, so it seems like there's a little bit of inside baseball going on here. As already mentioned, the, the church at Corinth a year earlier was, was ready to give well, but now they've walked back their commitment, and that's why Paul's confronting them. Paul calls them back to their commitment. But then also, he tempers his request by reminding them in verses 12 through 15 that he would never call for anyone to give in a way that causes the recipients to have it easy while the givers are now impoverished. So he's trying to make the point here that he's saying, listen, they're in real serious need. You have, you have uh, an overflow. You have an abundance. I'm not asking you to give in such a way that makes them have an overflow and abundance and you be short. I'm just asking you to skim some off the top so that they might not lack. That's all I'm asking you to do. Surely you can do that. So then in 16 to 24, the last part of chapter 8, Paul takes a little break from talking about the collection for the church in Jerusalem in order to commend Titus to the Corinthians. And we're going to read that, but then next week when we come back to this, in chapter 9, Paul starts right back in about the Jerusalem fund and he gets into his more general teaching about what we call Cheerful giving. You all know that verse. Ladies and gentlemen, Caleb Wiseman. You didn't walk in, brother. Wait, come here. You, uh, come here. Hey, look, check this out. Caleb has shorts on. I'm telling you, you got to look at this. You may never see it again. Caleb, in, I've known him four years. I think this is the second time I've seen him in shorts. Holy cow. Those are some long legs. Wow. All right. (laughs) They're white. (laughs) Ira, they're white. Yeah. (laughs) Okay. That's right. (laughs) All right. 16 through 24. Long slog. But thanks be to God who put into the heart of Titus the same earnest care I have for you. So there's that enthusiastic diligence. For he not only accepted our appeal, but being himself very earnest, he, was, uh, he is going to you of his own accord. With him we are sending the brother who is famous among all the churches for his preaching of the gospel. I wish we knew who that was. 
And not only that, but he has been appointed to the churches to travel with us as we carry out this act of grace that is being ministered to us, ministered by us for the glory of the Lord himself and to show our goodwill. We take this course so that no one should blame us about this generous gift that is being administered by us. For we aim at what is honorable, not only in the Lord's sight, but also in the sight of man. Interesting. And with them, we are sending our brother, whom we have often tested and found earnest in many matters, but who is now more earnest than ever because of his great confidence in you. As for Titus, he is my partner and fellow worker for your benefit. And, for, and as for our brothers, they are messengers of the churches. The, uh, the glory of Christ. So give proof before the churches of your love and of our boasting about you to these men. Paul commends three people in this paragraph and pauses to make reference to the orderly and proper way that this collection is being done. The reason he's talking about this now, scholars assume, is because uh, they're thinking it's possible that the Corinthians started to uh, feel like maybe there was something not quite right with how the money was being collected and accounted for. Now, that's never happened in a 20th or 21st century church, but apparently it happened in the first century. Okay, so they, they're assuming maybe, maybe they were pulling back in their giving because they weren't, they weren't faithful in how it was being, the, the collection was being handled. So Paul comments on Titus, of course, and two others, not sure who they are. I wish we knew. I'm assuming it's possible that it's Luke and Timothy. I don't know. And, I, and I'm, I'm, I'm kind of thinking maybe it's Timothy who's the good preacher. <laughs> you know, a little bit more charismatic than Paul. Okay. I wish we knew. Here's the thing. Here's why I, maybe here's why he doesn't name them. Because of greater importance are these three items. Number one, Paul is very careful to make sure that the handling of the money is done properly. That's verses 20 and 21. And he explains that to them so that neither God nor man has an, has a, an occasion to question the ethics of the treasury. Um, church governance is an interesting uh, thing. Um, it, I, having an elder board can be challenging for a pastor sometimes. If a pastor has a vision and the elder board is kind of holding him back, sometimes there are splits in elder boards. That can be really challenging. But you have to live with those challenges because I firmly believe that what's worse is a pastor who has no accountability. There has to be accountability there. Um, and when it comes to collecting money, I, I will just tell you, that one of the great things about internet giving, you know what it is, right? <laughs> you, you know, I, when I first became a pastor, I'm over at PVCC, and you're talking about ten dollars or $12,000 in those little giving boxes every week in checks and cash. Okay, that becomes a source of great temptation for whoever's doing that. That's why you would have teams of people double counting and watching the collection of it, you know. Now, on a Sunday, uh, an average giving week uh, at, at Arcadia is about $20,000 a week, 
That's an average income, maybe 25 sometimes. Um, we might get six or $700 in the giving boxes. I think that's a great advantage for us. It also takes less time to count it. You need fewer volunteers to do it. But I think that's just a great advantage for us. But I will tell you, nothing will, um, well, maybe that's too strong a statement. Few things will create distrust among church leadership quicker than if they think they're handling the money incorrectly or if they're not being upfront or honest about the handling of the money. So here's the second thing. Care and compassion in ministry workers is highly valued by Paul. He, he commends Titus because he has this care and compassion in him. So Paul highly values that. I know a lot of people think that Paul is just kind of this grumpy ogre guy, you know, by, the, by his writings and everything, but he really does have great care and compassion. And then three, uh, look at how often he talks again about being earnest, that earnestness, diligent enthusiasm. It's also a highly valued trait by Paul in ministry workers. So you look, at a, you look at a paragraph like this, this sort of interlude between, hey, I want to draw your attention back to this, this effort for the Jerusalem church that you need to get back on board with. And then in nine, here's some more teaching about that. Okay, this interlude. Uh, what I see in there for our church today is, do we have careful and transparent handling of our resources? Are we compassionate and caring for people? And are we enthusiastic and diligent about our call and servitude and ministry? I think those are good, good calls on the church. So, Paul will now, next week, chapter 9, he'll return to the matter at hand. He's going to talk about cheerful giving. That's where we'll start next week. Let me pray, and we will be on our way. Father God, thank you for your word and its truth, and for how uh, we still get to study it today and learn from it. It's amazing to me how this, all of this stuff was written thousands of years ago, and it's so relevant and applicable and practical uh, today. So thank you for that. Uh, we pray that we would be a church that would be compassionate and caring, that we would be transparent and, and uh, have integrity in handling our resources, and that we would be uh, enthusiastically diligent about our service, and we pray that in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, see you Monday, Sunday. No, I'm not going to see you Monday. I'll see you Sunday. <laughs>